Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. This is Georgia Today. I'm Steve Fennessy. It's Friday, January 15th, 2021. For more than four decades, Jim Galloway has been on the front lines of some of the biggest political stories in the South. The new flag does not, however, value one Georgian's heritage over another. Hard work is in our bones, and we have proven this every single day, Georgia. With doors knocked, with calls made, with miles traveled. Jim's a frequent guest on GPB's Political Rewind. But you likely also know him from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Political Insider column. After 41 years at the paper, Jim retires today. The chief, as he's called in the halls of the state capitol, stuck around long enough to cover one of the biggest political stories in a generation. Georgia changing the balance of power in the U.S. Senate with the victories last week of Democrats Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff. Jim, are you ready? I'm ready to go. When you... Look at the world now. I mean, the political world in America. What do you? What goes through your head? When I first started at the AJC as, as an editor there, I, I went and I went into reporting. I had a worked the weekend shift, and thus had thus was the uh, I was the Klan reporter. You know, I was the guy that that, that you sent out just just to monitor them. You, know, you didn't. Uh, we didn't like to write about them. Just to monitor them, and because because you know obviously they'd caused some trouble before, and now I, I you know I, I see them pretty much the same people out front, uh, out in the open. When when was that that you were monitoring the Klan for the AJC? Uh, that would have been early eighties. Okay, well that's a, that's a good time to talk. Uh, to start our discussion, actually, because I know you you started at the AJC in 1979. President Carter returns to Atlanta Tuesday for visits to the General Assembly in Georgia Tech. It's his third trip home in less than two months, home to the people who provided him with the initial support for his run for the presidency. But how would... That year in the General Assembly, there were 236 members of the State House and the State Senate. And of all those, 236, precisely 25 were Republican. Did they look like the Republicans that we see today, or, or, or? Oh no, well, no, 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 no. Is is in, in fact at the time when both Coverdell and Isaacson were the minority leaders in uh, Coverdell in the Senate and 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 Johnny in the House, uh, they called themselves progressives. Wow. <laughs> how how, how, how strange you, how, how like, branding how, changes. How, how, <laughs> yes, yes. How do you like that? They were in many many ways they were they were more liberal than the rural white democrats. Right. Uh they were they were a good bit more open on race. I mean, uh Isaacson ran in, in the I think it was the 1990 he, he ran for governor in 1990. Mm-hmm. Uh and, and I can remember uh, getting into a just a fierce battle with with Zell Miller, who was the, he was the Democrat, uh, when I inserted a line into a story, I was uh, I was I was uh, the political editor then, that said basically said for the first time Republicans are 
are, I mean, they have a candidate who, who could appeal to African-Americans in the same way that Democrats uh, and 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 Isaacson always did very well within the Af- African American community. I think he, in that case, he he kind of he kind of shot himself in the foot. I think he 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 came out against a renewal of the the Voting Rights Act, which which uh, which handed the issue back to back to Miller. Speaking of Johnny Isaacson and kind of flash forwarding a bit, but when he was stepping down from the, from the U.S. Senate um, for health reasons, and there was that really memorable moment in the House chamber in, in, in the Capitol. You have been very good to the people of the state of Georgia, and I'm lucky enough and just blessed really to, to call you a friend and a brother. Thank you so much. John Lewis said, I'm going to come over to you, brother. I will come over to meet you, brother. Moments like that didn't used to be so unique, but, but they are now. They were rare then, and they're almost impossible now. If you look at uh, Kelly Loeffler and Raphael Warnock in, in the U.S. Senate race, uh, that, that, that contest set back uh, Republicans for a good while as far as it comes to, to expanding uh, their base beyond, beyond white voters. So just a little history lesson for us. What explains the Democratic domination in Georgia in 1979 when you joined the AJC? Uh, that was largely largely uh, Jimmy Carter's doing. No poor, rural, weak, or black person should ever have to bear the additional burden of being deprived of the opportunity of an education, a job, or simple justice. He was able to to unite urban black Democrats. And rural white Democrats who didn't, the, and the latter didn't like, you know, the national democratic platform, but you know the, the, that was the power structure that was uh, in Georgia, and and they stuck with it, and that was how Democrats hung on in Georgia uh, until 2002, and that that's far far longer than than any other uh, state in the Deep South. All, all all the other ones had gone Republican well before us. So there was something about this coalition that, that Carter built that sort of cemented that? Basically, your communities go where your sheriff's races go. And as long as everybody stuck together, all these, all, all these white Democrats in rural Georgia stuck together, it was, it, was, uh, it was pretty resistant to change. Hello once again, and just to bring you up to date, NBC News has projected that Republican Ronald Reagan will be elected president of the United States over President Jimmy Carter. Let us show you the map now and show you why we are able to make that projection. As you can see, what role did did Reagan's presidency have on on the the evolution of the Republican Party here? I, I think it was transformational. He drew in a whole lot of the religious right coming into the Republican fold changed it immensely. I know that you've been horrified, as have I, by the resurgence of some hate groups preaching bigotry and prejudice. Use the mighty voice of your pulpits and the powerful standing of your churches to denounce and isolate these hate groups in our midst. The commandment given us is clear and simple. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The other part that Reagan brought was the optimism. That that to me is is one of the defining just just what makes Donald Trump so strange, 
in that he, no one would call him an optimist. Nobody, uh, I mean, there was no morning in America. Uh, just the pessimism that has that has that has befallen the, the Republican Party, I think, is just light years away from what happened when Reagan came in. You did have these terrible fights on the Republican side over uh, you know over who would take control of the party. Figures like Sadie Fields, who ran the Christian Coalition here, they they had a a very good couple decades that hit the high water mark probably in two thousand four, when Georgia put in the the state constitutional ban on same sex marriage. You know, it, uh, uh, it has been it has been downhill for social conservatives since then. I think in terms of influence at the at the state capitol. Well, what was it about the National Democratic Party platform um, that 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 rural rural white Georgians did not find favor? Civil rights. That's kind of the uh, theme that goes through most of uh, most of uh, uh, southern politics for the last good lord forever. Yeah, we're still coming to grips with it today. Uh, what happened back in 2002 is is that uh, uh, Roy Barnes uh, finally pulled down that uh, the, the, that 56 state flag with the Confederate battle emblem. From those who claim we can never satisfy the other side or say any change to our flag will dishonor our heritage. Well, I'm here to tell you there is no other side in Georgia. We are one people forever woven together in a tapestry that is Georgia. We are all one, or at least we should be. And it is our job, our duty, and our great challenge to fight the voices of division and to seek the salve of reconciliation. Was it clear to you at the time that that was crossing the Rubicon, kind of, for the Democratic Party? Uh, it became clear in the months that followed. Uh, Sonny Perdue uh, grabbed that issue and, 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 a, and a couple others and uh, pried white rural Georgia away from the Democrats. My fellow Georgians, I am honored to stand here today as your new governor humbled by history and lifted by your support. I won't forget I'm working for you. <laughs> Their alliance was, uh, was, was, was cemented for the next 20 years, which is rural Georgia and suburban Georgia. But that alliance failed to deliver last week as Democrats took both United States Senate runoff races. More on that ahead. Plus, when Jim Galloway wrote his political column twice a week, who was he picturing as his typical reader? This is Georgia Today. If you like hearing the news from around the state here on Georgia Today, you'll probably like hearing how Georgia's agriculture economy feeds the country and the world on a fork in the road. I'm David Zelski, and on the Fork in the Road podcast, we feature stories from Georgia's farmers, fishermen, merchants, artisans, chefs, and others who help provide Georgia-grown products to folks in the Peach State and beyond. Find it online at gpb.org podcast or download it on your favorite podcast platform.
This is Georgia Today. I'm Steve Fennessy. I'm speaking with political columnist Jim Galloway, who retires today, January 15th, after more than 40 years with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. We're talking a lot about politics, but in terms of your career, um, I understand that in the late 80s, you had your eye on a different kind of role at the paper. I had my, my eye on that role pretty much from the beginning. What role was that? A foreign bureau. We had a, a bureau in, in Moscow, in Jerusalem, in, uh, in London. Uh, we didn't have anything in Asia, and uh, we opened one in Tokyo. I put in a bid for it. Uh, Bill Kovich was the uh, editor. He said, no, we've got the, the DNC coming to Atlanta in 88, so please hold off. We'll do something with you later. So the year after that, I uh, just months after that, actually, uh, I got a Knight Wallace Fellowship uh, for the University of Michigan. Took the family, spent, spent a year studying Chinese uh, philosophy, uh, language, economics. Ended up kind of going to, to, to uh, uh, China on a scouting mission for a bureau uh, back in the, in the spring of 1989. And, of course, that's when Tiananmen Square happened. This is the CBS Evening News. Dan Rather reporting. Good evening. It is morning now, Monday, in Beijing a city under siege by China's own Liberation Army. Gunfire is still being heard in the streets of Beijing, but in many places, a general eerie uneasy quiet prevails. I was on Tiananmen Square the night the tanks came. I went around with an AP reporter the next day, and we found the the morgue over in Mushidi, it was it, the, most of the killing wasn't wasn't on the square. It was it was it was in the kind of the workers' quarter to the west of the west of Tiananmen, and uh, and we just saw the bodies that were just piled up up uh, up to the ceiling. A woman weeps over her dead brother, shot down beside her as they walked on a quiet street. Hospital administrators say they have been forbidden to release bodies to relatives for burial. Many of the wounded were bystanders, surprised when the soldiers opened fire indiscriminately. They had always believed that the People's Army would not use force against the people. You were there initially, or ostensibly, to establish or look into establishing a, a bureau for Cox, specifically, in Beijing. And, and it just happened to be at the same time as the June 4th Tiananmen uprising in 1989. In 1989, and uh, and which coincided with one of the first big newspaper recessions. So the decision was was made after after the uprising that we want to stay away from that as a bureau because of the uprising. Or? They couldn't afford a bureau there. How much of a disappointment was that to you? I had spent uh, uh, the better part of two years preparing, mm -hmm. but it, it sent me into another direction. Those bureaus, we don't have any bureaus now. Uh, you know, the Moscow is gone. Jer Jerusalem is gone. Uh, London is gone. Uh, those days are over. So I, I wouldn't have fared very well in any case there. It kind of, it kind of pointed me to hometown politics, which is the lifeblood of the paper. And that's, you know, as an occupational decision, that was probably the right one to make. What is it about the column format that appealed to you? There's something that we call, and, and I don't know if it exists on, in, in radio, but in newspapers we call it a voice. Do you have a voice or do you not have a voice? 
it's not about what you write about. It's it's how you tell the story. Is there a, a, a narrator within you that people will recognize and enjoy and and and, and respect? I, I was able to develop that. And what what was the what was the conceit of the political insider? What was sort of well the conceit? Well, here the the the, the thing was when you when you when you cut back on space so much, you have to you have to make a decision of what you cover. You know, we would cover the beginning and we would cover the end, but we wouldn't cover much in the middle. You you lose a lot of the subtlety of what you cover, mm-hmm. and and you lose a lot of knowledge, quite frankly, as as a reporter when you don't. The object was to get the minutia back in back into some form. We started doing the the insider, and it was the first content that was uh, created for the AJC that never appeared in print. By the end of the first year, when I was able to show them that we had we had one point seven million page views, which at the time was pretty impressive. This this is where I kind of first came into the uh, recognized the power of what was happening. I would you know I would sit in my office in the state capitol, I would type post an item about the state senate, I would walk walk across Mitchell Street into the capitol into the senate chamber, and I would get accosted by a senator saying, "No, you got it wrong. Here's what's really happening." It was absolutely amazing. I'm reminded of that line from Broadcast News where Albert Brooks says, "I say it here, and it comes out there." <laughs> Right. It's just it is it, it it was it that was it was just a stunning moment for me. When you were putting together these columns and, and over the years, the, the twenty years or so that you've been working on it, just in general, is there do you have a reader in mind? Uh if 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 I had a specific reader in mind, it would be the Republican who is getting uncomfortable with where his or her party is going. And why is that? Because my, my, my deepest fear about Georgia politics is that it would be completely defined by race, that, that we, the Republican Party would be, be the party of whites, the Democratic Party would be the party of blacks. Mm-hmm. So that, that was always my, my greatest fear. And it's one of the most important things that I think uh, that Stacey Abrams has been able to accomplish. We may come from different sides of the political aisle, but our joint commitment to the ideals of this nation cannot be negotiable. Our most urgent work is to realize Americans' dreams of today and tomorrow, to carve a path to independence and prosperity that can last a lifetime. She and other Democrats have been able to kind of recreate a different alliance. They've been able to recreate a a union of suburban Democrats and urban Democrats. It's biracial, it's multiracial now, and that's a good sign. Uh, and, And ultimately, Republicans are going to be forced to go in that direction unless they want to become a, a, a permanent minority party in Georgia. Democrats swept the Senate races in the traditionally red state of Georgia. Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff's victories mean that the Democrats will take control of the Senate. And this will- Ossoff and Warnock, to me, represent the antithesis of, of Donald Trump, his American first uh, agenda, and, and, and all the white nationalism that, that's kind of uh, associated with it in, in wink-wink fashion. Mm-hmm. 
Georgia, there's there's no denying the importance of this. Uh, this is the first time that uh, a Democrat, two Democrats, any Democrat has won statewide since the collapse of the party in 2002. It's uh, the first time the Democrats have held both Senate seats since 92. And and I think this is really important. Uh, uh, we can we can talk about the the fact that uh, Warnock is the first black senator from Georgia. Ossoff is the first Jewish senator from Georgia. But also, it, this is the first time really since World War II. We only had maybe I think eighteen months when when Max Cleland and Paul Coverdell were in office together uh, that both senators from Metro Atlanta uh, were from Metro Atlanta, and I think that's a true power shift in Georgia's political dynamics. I did want to ask about sort of the nature of, of the work that you've done over the years and and to what degree um, having having the Rolodex you've built up over the years, who are, who are the people that, that maybe transcended um, just like the source development, but people that you came to came to like and maybe even count as friend. Were there people among them? Johnny Isaacson has been a good friend. Uh, I, I can I can talk to Roy Barnes whenever I want. I mean, I've what's really just just mind boggling is is watching these these younger people uh, grow into these spaces. I mean, Abrams. You know, I mean, the first time first time I, I I wrote anything about Abrams, I think it was it was about how odd it was that she was also a, a novelist, a romance novelist, and now and now look where she is. It's 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 gotten a little bit harder to cover the people within the capital simply because messaging has gotten to be such a disciplined art among republicans they're very careful and 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 you don't have that relation you don't have as close a relationship uh when you're a columnist as when you have when you're a beat reporter because you're not making daily contact and, and quite often i don't want daily contact are you worried about the future of journalism and and uh, someone you know in 20 years uh, have, being able to recap their career the way you are now uh, I, I don't know that journalism will have that kind of stability. I hope as an entity, the AJC survives in some form. Uh, whether it will always be in print, I, I don't know. Uh, the editors want to keep it in print as long as they possibly can. It's just, just something about having that tactile piece of paper in your hand is rewarding. I think there are, are plenty of jobs out there. You will still have journalism. It's just, it's, it's, it won't be my kind of, my form of journalism, I think. What are you going to miss the most? This pandemic has kind of forced it on me. I miss, I miss the contact with 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 actual human beings. You could sit in the House Gallery in the State Capitol, and you can watch David Ralston and Stacey Abrams when she was in the legislature go at each other. But if you looked real hard, you could see their smiles. You know, you know this wasn't personal. There was a little bit of detachment, and 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 they understood that. With everybody's masking up, you you can't see that you can't see somebody's face. I, I've gone through forty years as a journalist, half deaf, and you know until until March, I didn't quite realize how much I depended on lip reading to make sure I understood what people were saying. Uh, so I mean, it's just I, I will miss the personal contact, I think, and the, being able to read the body language. And there's a saying in politics that never speak if you can wink, never wink if you can just raise your finger. And never raise your finger if you if, if if you don't have to. 
My thanks to AJC political columnist Jim Galloway, who retires today. Jim's not going too far, though. You can still hear him as a guest on GPB's Political Rewind. As to what's next for him, well, Jim's working on one of his retirement projects, carving a wooden lectern for his daughter, who's a school teacher. Oh, yeah, 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 oh, yeah, 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 I've got a, I've got a, a, a whole wood shop full of tools that I haven't used well enough or often enough. I'm Steve Fennessy. This is Georgia Today, a production of Georgia Public Broadcasting. You can subscribe to our show anywhere you get podcasts. Please leave us a rating and review on Apple. Our producer is Sean Powers. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.